Hey everyone, my name is Randall Heyer and I'm the worship arts pastor here at Cochrane Alliance Church. We are so glad that you've come to check out the latest sermon and we pray that you are encouraged, challenged, and ultimately that you are drawn closer to Jesus. Enjoy. Let's uh, pray for the service this morning. Heavenly Father, well, first of all, we know that there are these uh, Ukrainian families who have joined us here in Cochrane, and we know that they have uh, great need. They've come through all sorts of different uh, situations and uh, different countries, and, and their life is just sort of in turmoil and chaos. And so I pray that the people of Cochrane would be, um, as they already have been, but they would continue to be, um, a place where they can find peace and welcome and warmth. I pray that Cochrane Alliance Church would, uh, would be on the front lines of helping these families get connected and settled and uh, find a place of, of safety and a place of belonging. And so I pray you'd help us uh, in those ways. Uh, Holy Spirit, stir up in us. If there's something that we can do uh, and, and it's specific to us, just stir that in our hearts and, and bring it to our minds. I pray for our message today. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would speak to us by the word of God, by the, the power of your presence at work amongst us. I pray we would receive and hear what you would have for us today. And so we invite you, Holy Spirit, to speak to us. And Lord Jesus, we do all this um, because we are so, just so grateful for what you have done and what you continue to do. And so we do all this to praise your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, as Christians, we believe in the supernatural. You can't get away from that. Our faith is a supernatural faith. I mean, even if you're like, well, I don't really like saying that. I feel a little uncomfortable saying that. Can I just tell you what you believe? You believe that the very Son of God was born of a virgin, died but rose again, and ascended to heaven where he lives today, ruling with the Father. We believe that we who've placed our faith in Jesus also receive the indwelling presence of God called the Holy Spirit. And we believe that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are distinct persons, yet one God, what we've termed the Trinity. We believe that Jesus was tempted in the desert by a spiritual adversary named Satan. We believe that Jesus cast out demons and triumphed over every ruler and authority in the spiritual realm. The Apostle Paul tells us our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's what you believe. To not believe this would be to not believe the the creeds of, of the Christian faith. So I know that in our modern mindset, we might sometimes be uncomfortable talking about the spiritual worldview that we have, but the reality is that if you believe in Jesus, you must have a spiritual and even a supernatural worldview. And I bring all this up today because we're going to be jumping uh, forward in our series through the book of Acts, and we're going to jump forward to where the message of Jesus is being proclaimed outside Jerusalem for the first time. The gospel is now being proclaimed in Samaria, just as Jesus said it would be. And the message of the gospel is coming not only in word, but also in power, which Jesus also promised, right? Because he said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. So before we get to the gospel being preached in Samaria, I want us to see that what is occurring in Samaria is both obedience to Jesus' command to go and be witnesses to Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, but it's also an answer to prayer. So let's back up just a little bit. In Acts chapter 3, we saw that Peter and John healed a lame man at the temple gate. 
And it caused a, a big disturbance and a big crowd gathered and many people came to believe in Jesus because they saw the healing power of Jesus used to heal this man who'd been lame for 40 years. But the religious council, the Sanhedrin, they uh, arrested Peter and John because they didn't want this disturbance and, and they thought, man, this man Jesus that, that we, we thought we got rid of for good is, is now coming back. The name and the power of Jesus is being used and so they threaten Peter and John and they say, don't speak the name of Jesus again and Peter and John say, well, of course we have to. We're not gonna stop speaking the name of Jesus and they have to let them go. But Peter and John know that this is really the beginning of the hostility they're gonna face from the religious establishment. So they're arrested, they're questioned, they're released because the religious leaders go, we don't really know what to charge them with and we don't want to riot, so they let them go. And Peter and John immediately go to a gathering of believers and they have a prayer meeting. That's what you do when persecution comes and comes at you hard as you go and you have a prayer meeting. So they go to this prayer meeting and they pray this in Acts chapter 4, now Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and to perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Just a really quick note, I love that they don't come and pray and say, Oh Lord, strike down the ones who are against us. Oh Lord, let the persecution stop. They just say, Well, of course that's going to happen. Just give us boldness. They don't even assume that persecution won't happen. They just say, of course, that's going to happen. Just make us bold. Now, persecution ramps up after this as the church in Jerusalem continues to grow. And the persecution just keeps on building and building and building until we come in to Acts chapter 7 where a man named Stephen is killed at the hands of the religious leaders. And Stephen's death begins a time of great persecution. So Acts chapter 8 opens up like this. On that day, that's the day Stephen was killed, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Saul was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house, dragging off men and women and putting them in prison. So the gospel is going to be proclaimed in Samaria, but another interesting thing to note is that it's not under ideal circumstances. It's not as though the church in Jerusalem was doing so well, and they said, oh, we're just doing so well, let's commission some, some missionaries to go out, and we'll give them money to go out and do this. No, it happens because persecution comes up, and they have to flee, they have to scatter, and that's how the gospel ends up being preached in Samaria. But it's that prayer in Acts chapter 4 that's being fulfilled. That prayer to speak the word with boldness in the face of threats and that prayer for miracles and signs and wonders to be done in the name of Jesus. Because if we continue reading in Acts chapter 8, we read this. Those who were scattered went on their way preaching the word. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to them. The crowds were all paying attention to what Philip said as they listened and saw the signs he was performing. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. This man, Philip, who begins to proclaim the gospel and perform signs and wonders in Jesus' name, just so you know who this Philip is, it's not uh, Philip the Apostle. This is actually the Philip that we meet in Acts chapter 6. When the apostles need to find, and they put it in these words, spirit-filled men to help with food distribution. Just another side note. 
we kind of maybe would think food distribution to the widows is like, well, anyone can do that. But they're like, no, we need spirit-filled men. You're like, aren't all people spirit-filled? Yes, but they're like, we want those who are walking in the power and in step with the Holy Spirit. They've got to meet this criteria of being spirit-filled men. And Philip is one of those men. And when the great persecution breaks out, he goes to Samaria, where as a spirit-filled follower, he begins to turn Samaria upside down. As we're reading in Scripture, demons are cast out, sick are healed, and many come to faith. Now, when we read this account of Philip in Samaria, where demons are being cast out with shrieks and paralyzed people are being healed and great joy is coming into the city, you know, it kind of, for me, paints this really astounding kind of scene. In my mind, this is how I imagine it, I imagine Philip at a well. I don't know why. Just this is, this is what it is in my mind. And there's crowds of people, and there's people, demons are being cast out with shrieks, which is kind of a wild thing. And people who are paralyzed for their entire lives are standing up and walking. And people are shouting, and they're, they're going, you've got to come and see this. And they're running to get their family members to come and see him. I have no idea if that's what it looked like, but that's sort of the, the image that I think is being painted. There's kind of this wild scene happening in this city in Samaria. And people are saying, you've got to come. This man is doing something incredible. And then he uses that opportunity, the signs and the wonders, to proclaim the name of Jesus. Many believe, and there's great joy. What I want you to keep in mind, though, is that what Philip is doing is he's actually just doing what Jesus did. As wild as the scene is that's happening, he's really just continuing the ministry of Jesus, right? Jesus also did this stuff. He cast out demons, he healed the lame and sick people, and he proclaimed the kingdom of God, bringing great joy to many. And we see that Jesus also commissioned his 12 disciples to do these things. In Matthew, it says Jesus called the 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits, to heal every disease and sickness, saying, as you go, proclaim this message, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons, freely you have received, freely give. So this is just a continuation. You see it with the 12, and then Jesus sends out 72 disciples, and the 72 disciples do the exact same thing. So what Philip is doing here, as as wild of a scene as this looks like, what Philip is doing is just a continuation of Jesus' ministry. Because if you remember in John 14, 12, Jesus said, anyone who believes in me will do what I have done or will do the same works that I have done. And so although it might be startling to a modern eye to read this this account of demons being cast out and the paralyzed being healed, it's best to understand this as Philip simply doing the work Jesus called his followers to do. Relying on the power of the Holy Spirit to be a witness of Jesus to Samaria and eventually the ends of the earth, transforming the world both physically and spiritually in the name and the power of Jesus, really turning the world upside down. Yeah, upside down. Due to our, our modern mindset, I don't know about you, I, listen, I'm pretty skeptical about supernatural claims. I'm pretty suspicious. I don't buy it easily. And due to that kind of modern mindset that, that discounts the supernatural and spiritual, we might want to shy away from things like this. But from the Christian worldview, we believe in a spiritual reality. Our very faith is based on the fact that we believe that there's a spiritual world that interacts with the physical world. So let me just give you a bit of history on the spiritual realities of doing ministry in the first century Greco-Roman world. That culture was filled with with different spiritual practices that was embraced by the population. They worshipped all sorts of different gods and goddesses. You know, if you were the average kind of Gentile, 
that's a non-Jewish person, you would probably, you know, one day worship with Athena, and then if you're going, you know, had a ship going across the sea, you'd make sure to go hit the Greek god Poseidon, and, you know, you just kind of mix and match your gods and goddesses and, and do all sorts of weird rituals and practices. Everything was embraced. And all these different spiritual practices, you know, were, were very occult in nature in how they did it, even in Samaria. Because we're actually introduced to a man named Simon the Sorcerer in our text today. It says, A man named Simon had previously practiced sorcery in that city and amazed the Samaritan people while claiming to be somebody great. They all paid attention to him. And they said, This man is called the great power of God. They were attentive to him because he had amazed them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news about the kingdom of God, both men and women were baptized, and even Simon himself believed. And after he was baptized, he followed Philip everywhere and was amazed as he observed the signs and great miracles that were being performed. The text indicates that this Simon had some sort of spiritual power that amazed the people, right? He was so amazing in his spiritual power that they called him the great power of God. They said, man, this guy has got something. He's got some kind of power. And so for the truth of Jesus to be presented to this type of region, there was going to have to be a demonstration that whatever spiritual power Simon had, it was not nearly as powerful as the power of the Holy Spirit working in Philip, which brought many to faith, including Simon. In our modern day, we see, you know, things like sorcery and magic as nothing more than illusions and card tricks, nothing more than sleight of hand. However, in the first century world, magic and sorcery was rooted in occult practices. So if you're wondering, you know, why is the casting out of demons so prevalent in Samaria and elsewhere in the Roman Empire, I can give you an example of how magic and sorcery was practiced that will shed some light on what exactly this type of thing was, was doing. So there was a manuscript that was uncovered not very long ago at an archaeological dig, and this manuscript inscription dates back to around the first century, they think. That would be about the time of the early church. So not that long after the events in Samaria took place. And what is on this manuscript is an incantation of sorcery. It's an incantation that uh, Simon the sorcerer might have used. It's very... It would be very similar to what Simon might have said. And so here's how the incantation goes. Just so you kind of understand, when we talk about, you know, first century sorcery or first century magic, this is the type of stuff they did. So Simon would have used something like this. He would say, Come to me, spirit that flies in the air, called with secret codes and unutterable names, at this lamp divination which I perform, enter into the boy's soul, so that he may receive immortal form in mighty and incorruptible light. So what they would do, what sorcery was, is you would invite spirits, especially spirits of gods or goddesses, to inhabit the soul of the person so that they would take on the form of the god or goddess. That's what they believed, and they would channel this spirit. So that would be something actually very typical for someone like Simon the Sorcerer to engage in. Now, obviously, if you're inviting a spirit to inhabit a boy's soul, well, something just might take you up on that. This is not benign. It's not just... Something might actually show up. And so with the knowledge that Simon the sorcerer was revered amongst the people of the city, being called the great power of God, but this is the type of stuff he was engaging in, you can see why being a witness of Jesus here would come with the casting out of impure spirits. This type of occult practice was commonplace across the Roman Empire. And so as we go through the book of Acts, you're going to consistently see that the truth of Jesus will often cause confrontation with people who are afflicted by evil spirits, probably because a lot of their occult practices was channeling spirits through themselves. It's kind of a thing you don't want to do. 
the other interesting thing, here's, sir, so here's kind of an interesting little detail. I basically wrote two sermons. I got to this point and I wrote a sermon about the spiritual realities of evil and how the first century church, their witness was really their ability to demonstrate the power of Jesus over the power of other gods and goddesses. And that goes all the way up to the 300s. But then I was like, no, there's this other piece in this text that I think is really interesting. And it comes when we continue on in Acts chapter 8. And we're going to talk about the filling of the Holy Spirit instead. So if we continue in Acts chapter 8, we read this. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. If you've got any kind of understanding of Christian, basic kind of evangelical Christian theology, this passage should make you go, what? What is happening here? They've been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, but they haven't received the Holy Spirit. How does that work? Because classic evangelical Christian theology would, would affirm this. They would say with the Apostle Paul that no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. It's 1 Corinthians 12, 3. And that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit the moment we believe. That's Ephesians 1, 13. So these Samaritan believers who confess Jesus as Lord, if we're tracking biblically, they must have had the Holy Spirit working within them because you cannot say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. Yet so important is the Holy Spirit, so essential to Christian faith and practice that the apostles come to lay hands on them to make sure the fullness of the Spirit is poured out. My guess would be that the Samaritan believers had received the Holy Spirit because no one could say Jesus is Lord but by the Spirit, but they were unaware that the same power that Philip was using was available to them as well. So Philip, for whatever reason, never taught them that. Maybe they're so new in kind of how God is moving and working that Philip just assumed, oh, the apostles have to be the ones to lay hands on. I can't do that. It's the apostles lay hands. I don't know why he didn't teach them about the Holy Spirit. But it's clear from Peter and John going there to pray for them to be filled with the Spirit that they saw this as an essential part of the Christian faith and practice. You must receive, you must be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is so important. We're coming and making sure this happens. That they would experience the outpouring of God's Spirit in a tangible way. Uh, uh, kind of this, this older, uh, uh, I think he's a Presbyterian pastor, Dr. Lloyd uh, Ogilvie makes a good point here. He says, any preacher or witness to Christ who proclaims the wonders of salvation without making clear the necessity of the Holy Spirit to live within us and give us power to live the new life in Christ has given their listeners hope without healing, potential without the power to live it. We can know the facts of what Christ did without having the enabling power of what he is doing. And I don't, I don't ever want to be critical or, or negative, but I actually do believe we've had a lot of people preach a gospel that doesn't mention the importance of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life. We might have many people like the Samaritan believers before John and Peter came. They're saved. They're baptized in Jesus' name. They've received the Holy Spirit but they have no idea about the power of the Holy Spirit for living or about the expectation that they would be continually filled by the Spirit and so they're lacking power to move forward in the Christian life. I grew up in the Christian Missionary Alliance Church. I went to Bible college. I had no idea what the Holy Spirit was doing in my life. I would have limited it to, he seals me for eternity and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. That's all I knew about the Holy Spirit. That's it. And I came to a place, I remember in my own Christian life, reaching a place of, of really deep discouragement 
because I couldn't live up to the standards of the Christian life. I was always falling short, and I know that there's grace available, and I know that there's forgiveness given, and I know that I won't ever be perfect, no matter how full of the Spirit I am, but it was feeling like I never made any real progress. It was like one step forward, two steps back, and it was really discouraging. And the change came for me when I heard a pastor preaching on the fruit of the Holy Spirit, and he used this phrase. He said, it's the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruit of you which is a phrase I now use all the time because it's actually, for me, it was mind-blowing. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's not the fruit of you. So the fruit of the Holy Spirit, of course, is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control, and I couldn't produce those things in my life. But it turns out I don't have to produce those things. The Holy Spirit produces them. So instead of striving for perfection, what I really had to do was rest in Jesus And what I mean by rest in Jesus is I mean I had to abide with him. He's the true vine, and we are the branches. Anyone who abides in him will receive life. And so I just had to be in prayer and in relationship and and turn my fix my eyes on Jesus. And if I had my eyes fixed on Jesus, I could trust that the Holy Spirit would do that deep work in me, produce the fruit of the Spirit in me. That's what the Apostle Paul is getting at in Romans 7, 6, when he says, now we can serve God, not in the old way of obeying the letter of the law, but in the new way of living in the Spirit. And this, this is going to bring you back, if you're here to my first sermon, it'll bring you back to that first sermon I preached where I said, you cannot live the Christian life without the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is given so that we can truly follow God, not by sheer effort to obey the law, but by true transformation of our hearts. I think this is such a key piece. Sometimes when people are brought to faith, what they think they're being brought into is a new religion that says, here's the rules. Here's the do's and the don'ts. Try hard to be good. And it becomes a crushing weight. But what we're really inviting people into is life transformation. We're saying, this is the supernatural spiritual part of your faith. We're saying you literally become a new creation in Christ. You are born again of the Spirit. And that changes everything. Because the Holy Spirit then teaches us what it means to be a new creation in Christ. And he leads us and transforms our hearts and minds. And so Peter and John are aware that these Samaritan believers are going to need the power of the Holy Spirit. That they would have to know and experience the person of the Holy Spirit tangibly if they're going to be able to live out the Christian life. And I think, okay, think again about Simon the sorcerer here who dabbled in all sorts of weird spiritual practices, inviting spirits to inhabit people. You're definitely going to need to know the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit if you're going to live in that type of environment. Jesus said you can sweep the house clean of one spirit and then it comes back with seven more. And so they need to know the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit. And there's so many heartbreaking conversations I've had with Christians who keep trying to live the Christian life in their own strength and in their own power, who feel defeated, and who feel as though the burden that Jesus has, has placed on them is heavy, but Jesus said his burden is light. And I go, as soon as the burden of following Jesus is heavy, we know something is wrong because Jesus said my burden is light. So where's the disconnect? And most of the time the disconnect comes back to a lack of knowledge and experience of the Holy Spirit. When we lack knowledge or experience of the Holy Spirit, it tends to lead us to create churches that are built on man-made rules and legalistic systems where we work really hard to be good and to do good and to not do the wrong thing, and that becomes a crushing weight. It all depends on your effort and not the life-giving Holy Spirit within you. There's no joy in it. Worse than crushing you, what it also can do is it can create people who look good on the outside because they look like they can follow all the rules. 
without having hearts that are shaped by the Holy Spirit. So you can have the Christians who don't swear, don't watch certain TV shows, don't go to certain places, go to every Bible study, show up to every church service, and you're like, how are you still a jerk? Like, you've been a Christian for 25 years, and you're the meanest person I've ever met. You cut people down with a word. You're power hungry, you're narcissistic, you're selfish. How did you go to church for 20 years and and not change? In fact, maybe you're worse. It's because we can build these systems where if you follow the outward appearance of religion, everyone goes, look, well, he's a man of faith. And we we don't really know what to do with the the rot within, the, the selfishness and the pride and the greed. And it really is because we we sometimes neglect the role of the Holy Spirit in heart transformation. The Apostle Paul is is frustrated by those who keep wanting to live under the law. And he writes to the Galatians, how foolish can you be? After starting your new lives in the Spirit, why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human effort? And so it's been my experience that a lack of knowledge about the role and the work of the Holy Spirit leads to this foolishness that Paul describes, trying to be perfect by human effort. Let me give you a story of my own life. I had an experience of being filled with the Holy Spirit. So remember, I didn't know anything about the Holy Spirit. Just vague things. You know, I could write you a theological paper on the Holy Spirit. Like, I, I went to Bible college. I, could, I can write you a document, you know, going through all the Bible verses about the Holy Spirit. But I had no real tangible experience of the Holy Spirit. I didn't really know. I was like, somehow the Holy Spirit does something. But it was a few years into my role as a pastor. And I'd been doing well as a pastor. You know, the, the church had been kind of on shaky ground. And, and a few years in, the church was sort of doing, it was sustaining itself. It was, it was doing well. But I had problems sleeping. I had this constant, nagging, low-level anxiety. I couldn't go on, I'd go on vacation, but it wasn't like taking a vacation because I constantly carried this baggage with me of going, who should I have phoned? Who is expecting me to do this? What could I have done better? What should I have done? You know, if this person thinks this about me, then this whole thing is gonna fall apart. And so I, I constantly, I couldn't sleep. There would be Sundays that I would get up to preach and I hadn't slept. I hadn't slept at all. And I'd preach a sermon on no sleep. And I, I couldn't have vacation because I was always just in, in anxious, I'd have this anxiety. Because when you build anything in your own effort, especially if you attempt spiritual endeavors in your own power, it feels exactly like a house of cards. No matter how impressive that house of cards is, you're very aware that one wrong gust of wind, one person touching it in the wrong spot, and the whole thing is going to come crashing down. And so instead of peace, I had anxiety. And instead of, you know, Instead of joy, I was feeling fear. And instead of love, I just kept trying to achieve more and more. So I wasn't sleeping, and I was anxious about what could happen or might happen, and I knew, I got to a place where I was like, I cannot continue doing this job if this is how I'm going to live. I can't, I can't be a pastor if this is what being a pastor is. And so we've been studying as a church the role of the Holy Spirit and studying the book of Acts, and it, it led me to this life-changing experience so I had a week at work that was fairly slow. Maybe I had someone else coming in to preach or I was done my sermon early. And I thought, okay, this week, I didn't know what I was doing, but I said, okay, this week, every afternoon, I'm going to devote myself to prayer and to fasting. And so what I'd do is every afternoon, I'd go down to what we called our prayer room in the church. And I would get on my knees because I was like, I don't know, I want to show my devotion. And I would just pray, Lord, what do you want me to do? you got to show me. I don't know what I'm doing. 
And so every afternoon I was praying and, and again, I'm kind of like, I don't know, I'm not a very like spiritual or emotional person, but I'd go, if a thought comes into my head, I'm going to obey it. I'm going to assume it's of God. Now I can question that. I can go, maybe it's just me. Maybe it's my imagination, but I'm not going to, I'm just going to go with it. I'm just going to do, I'm just going to pray. I'm just going to seek after the Lord. So it was, it was kind of crazy. I, I was led to, you know, the first thing the Holy Spirit did was lead me to repent of sin that I had it was years ago, but I'd never actually repented of it. I kind of stuffed it into a box, threw it into the back corner of my soul or the back corner of my mind and said, okay, I won't do that again. Let's move forward. But never actually been addressed. And the Holy Spirit is like, bring that into the light. Let me forgive that. Let me break any of the shame that's attached to that. So that's where I started. Then I was led to pray for people I hadn't thought about fears. And I read scripture as I felt led to do so. It was a really weird week. And uh, I knew something had to change, so I just kept pushing in and pushing in. So here's where it starts to get really weird. On Thursday, I had this sense of, at the end of my prayer time, before I was going to walk home, I had this sense something shifted. I don't know how else to describe it. It's like, that was weird. So I get up and I start walking home. And as I'm walking home, I have this sense of a presence with me, and I have this buzzing, tingling sensation all over the back of my neck. And I'm like, this is really weird. Like, this is spooky. So I go home, barbecue some hamburgers and, and whatever, but this, this buzzing, tingling sensation won't go away to, su- to such a degree that that night I was Googling symptoms of buzzing and tingling in the spine. And I was like, maybe this is like, maybe I've got MS. Like, here's the thing. I wanted to have a spiritual experience, but I'm so skeptical and suspicious that my, I was like, I have of two minds. I said, either this is a spiritual experience or I'm very sick. It's one of these two things, and, and I assumed it was probably, I was sick, because I was like, these things don't happen. So I wake up on Friday, and when I first woke up, I was like, oh, that weird buzzing is gone. It wasn't. It came right back. And I walk to church, and I've got this buzzing sensation. I'm like, this is getting bizarre. And I had to do the PowerPoint of worship music. I had to get the worship music. That was way back in the day when I still wrote things out by hand in PowerPoint. That's insane. That's so much work. But I had to get that done Friday morning. So I was typing, and I was, while I did that, I usually listen to like Christian documentaries or, or sermons or something like that. So I'm listening to this documentary on something, and a seminary professor said, truth is a person, truth is Jesus. And at that, I had the weirdest moment in my life. I broke down weeping. I couldn't stop it, I couldn't control it, and I cried for 20 minutes, maybe a little more. And I couldn't stop it, and I didn't know why, and I didn't know I couldn't control it. And here's something you need to know about me. Lori jokes that I'm a robot. She's like, you are the most unemotional person I've ever met. She was shocked at our wedding when I had a tear roll down my cheek. She's like, whoa, you showed emotion. So this is weeping for 20 minutes. I don't think I'd ever done that before. And there was a profound shift. And I still don't exactly know what happened. But there was a profound shift in my mind and my spirit afterwards. I had peace when I thought about the future, not anxiety. And I was able to make decisions without that same level of fear. And I'm still a work in progress. I'm not there. But I I will say this. That experience is the only reason I'm still a pastor. If I hadn't had that experience, what I'm going to call a filling of the Holy Spirit, I wouldn't be here right now. Couldn't have continued. And so what these Samaritan believers experience is this tangible outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Yes, they're saved. They're believers. They've been baptized in the name of Jesus. But they receive this this next filling of the Holy Spirit. 
And what you're going to notice is that Luke, who's the author of the book of Acts, is going to go out of his way throughout the book of Acts to tell us about the importance of being filled with and experiencing the Holy Spirit. I'm just going to give you a couple of examples as we close here. Just so you get, this isn't like, oh, that was weird with the Samaritans. I don't know what that was about. This is actually something that's repeated throughout the book of Acts. When Saul encounters Jesus on the road to Damascus and comes to faith, the believer who is sent to him, who is Ananias, says to him, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 10, when Peter is led by the Lord to the house of Cornelius the Gentile, as Peter is explaining to them who Jesus is, we read this. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came upon all who heard the message. Peter said, surely no one can stand in the way of them being baptized. They've received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus. Here you have a reversal. With the Samaritans, they're baptized in the name of Jesus, then received the Holy Spirit. And here they're baptized in the Holy Spirit and then baptized in the name of Jesus. In Acts chapter 13, we've got another confrontation with a sorcerer. This one is named Elmas. And we read this, that Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elmas. Do you notice this? Saul's already been filled with the Holy Spirit. Back in Acts 9, he's filled with the Holy Spirit again in Acts chapter 13, and he has a showdown with a sorcerer to proclaim the gospel. And in Acts 19, we have another group of believers, like the Samaritans, who are sincere in their devotion but lacking information had not yet experienced or received the Holy Spirit. And Paul, it says this, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. I've actually changed the way I baptize people now. When they come up out of the water, immediately I say, I'm going to pray for you quick. And I say, would you come, Holy Spirit, and fill them to the fullness of your presence? Because I see it in the book of Acts over and over and over again. And I'm like, I just want to be obedient. I don't want people to live the Christian life like I live the Christian life, trying to do it in my own power. I want them to know and experience the tangible work of the Holy Spirit. And so what we see throughout Acts is that there's, a, there's an emphasis on the necessity of the Holy Spirit. And I have no desire to lead a church that isn't going to be reliant upon the leading of the Holy Spirit. Because I'm convinced that the New Testament shows us the necessity of being empowered by the Holy Spirit as a church body, as a church family. But I've seen a lot of churches that are hesitant to even speak of the Holy Spirit, to seek the Holy Spirit, to affirm the lordship of the Holy Spirit. There's almost a sense in which there's churches who quench the Holy Spirit. Remember 1 Thessalonians, do not quench the Spirit, do not treat prophecies with contempt. I've been in many churches where people will say, well, we don't want any weird stuff. Do you know what you believe? You believe that the Son of God was born of a virgin, that he died and was raised to life. You don't want any weird stuff? It's too late for that. Right? Like, you might as well get weird. It's already weird. And that doesn't mean unbiblical. You ever read the book of Acts? It's pretty radical stuff. A.W. Tozer said, I doubt whether any evangelical ever denied the deity of the Holy Spirit. However, we certainly neglect him and his lordship within the church. This failure to honor the Holy Spirit has resulted in much desolation within the church. 
And he goes on to say it's basically an old maids club with some religious flavor thrown in. He's like, I don't want to do that. I'm like, I don't want to do that either. Sounds boring. And I don't want a boring church. You know, the Holy Spirit brings some excitement. The Holy Spirit brings joy. The Holy Spirit brings freedom. And that's why I have no desire to lead a church that would say, we don't want any of that. It's like, there's no other way forward. Otherwise, I'm going to lead you into a legalistic, crushing religion, and I don't want to do that. I'm going to call the worship team up, and we're just going to kind of invite you to, to think two questions with me as they come. Number one, if you've been feeling as though there's got to be more to the Christian life, well, I can assure you that there is more, that the deeper Christian life is found in pursuing the fullness of the Holy Spirit by inviting the Holy Spirit to fill you each day, to lead you and to transform you. Or if you've been feeling that the Christian life is a burden rather than a joy, then I would invite you to pray for the Holy Spirit to work in you, to release you from religious burden and lead you to abundant life in Christ. Because the Holy Spirit leads us to joy, and the joy of the Lord produces joy in us. Acts 13.52 says the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Context of Acts 13.52, a whole city has just turned against them and they have to flee. And it says, but the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. And finally, the kingdom of God is not a matter of what we eat or drink, but of living a life of goodness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Sometimes churches remove the in the Holy Spirit part, and they're like, hey, you've got to be good and peaceful and joyful. Like, you can't. It's in the Holy Spirit. In the Holy Spirit. Let me pray for us. Holy Spirit, we thank you as you've been given to each one of us as a great gift of the Father. So, Father, thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit within us. And I pray for those who've been burnt, burnt out and, and crushed and, and feeling a load of guilt or shame. Holy Spirit, would you come and renew our hearts? Would you fan into flames those, those embers of faith that maybe have been wavering? And I pray that you would bring joy, the joy of the Lord to us by your power at work in us. And I pray that we would know that we are sons and daughters. Holy Spirit, we know you pour the love of the Father into our hearts. And so I pray for any of those who feel unloved, that they would feel the love of the Father today. And I pray that we would seek after you, that we would not despise your work in our lives, but that we would embrace it, that we wouldn't say no to you, but that we would open ourselves up and submit to the Lordship of Jesus and the empowering, filling Holy Spirit. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Let's worship together.